Hello, I'm Evelyn Nebrata, Asia Managing Editor at Red Intelligence. Welcome to the Red Talks podcast. Today, we'll be discussing the outlook for Asia's credit market this year, focusing on China, India, and Southeast Asia. For China, we have Tiffany Wong, Managing Director at Alvarez & Marsan. Tiffany is a financial advisor whose work on some of the most high-profile restructurings in China. Tiffany, thanks for joining us. Last year was a pretty bad year for uh, China property. Chinese developers account for 30 to 40% of Asia High Yield Universe, so this had an impact on other markets as well. Um, market feedback suggests that there could be a polarization in China's property sector, where the strong get stronger and the weak get weaker. Um, Dalian Wanta's unit, for example, pulled off um, a successful bond uh, sale in January. Tiffany, do you think this is a positive signal for the sector or a one-off event that's specific to uh, the company? Yeah, Tiffany, um, thanks for your question. Uh, first of all, yeah, I, I do agree that it is a positive signal. Um, and I think uh, you make a, a fair observation that um, the future prospects of China's property sector will get polarized or more po polarized in the sense that um, the strong gets stronger and the weaker ones will be struggling even more to stay afloat. The central government has rolled out uh, macro policies and measures in the last few months to seek to make it easier for developers to raise capital and loan repayment extension. These measures include um, the easing of these three red lines, which were put in place uh, to restrict the amount of new borrowing of property developers can raise each year. Uh, however, it is believed that like you know, resources will be focused on those companies which have stronger performance and reputation historically and projects in the first and second tier cities in order to avoid systemic risk and to restore market confidence, which are like important considerations for maintaining uh, social stability in China. Uh, you mentioned about the uh, 400 million bond, uh, which was raised by a uh, Dalian Wanda uh, unit in January. Uh, first of all, I think one distinction uh, which I like to point out is that uh, the issuer is a property management company of Wanda, as, a, as opposed to the ones uh, which operates as a property developer. Um, it is also like clear from um, its offering circular that um, the purpose of the fund raised uh, is for offshore debt restructuring. As I mentioned, I certainly see um, this to be a uh, you know um, the. The, it is a positive sign that um, there's so much interest in the market that as much as 1.4 billion US was raised um, in the issue. Um, and in fact, on the 6th of, Jan of February, just a few days ago, um, the same Wanda unit actually pushed another 300 million bond to the market. And uh, the market, I mean, the, the news is that like uh, the market has once again responded uh, very positively. Got it. Thank you. Um... Stephanie, do you think Chinese issuers will pursue more uh, capital market deals this year? And how do you think investors are likely to respond? Um, is there a common pattern that will emerge or certain companies that investors prefer or avoid? Uh, what's your sense, Tiffany? I think uh, with the abolition of the zero COVID policy and um, the easing of the macro policies for restricting fundraising, um, Chinese issuers will definitely look to pursue uh, more capital market deals this year uh, in an attempt to restructure their balance sheets. And uh, more importantly, at the uh, onshore level, uh, fundraising is needed to enable construction work to be resumed so that the backlog of property units will be delivered to the end buyers as soon as possible. This is, again, right, um, uh, a core issue like that is uh, need to be addressed uh, uh, at the uh, onshore level. That means social stability. 
I mean, and given the overwhelming response of the bonds issued by um, the Wanda, like your Dalian Wanda unit, um, it is anticipated that um, the market will also respond uh, positively to the other capital market deals pursued by other major real, real estate companies. I see that like uh, cost of funding will remain high uh, for the Chinese issuers and uh, investors uh, that are, are going to be uh, selective and prefer those uh, that are like, you know, those issuers that are benefited from the like, government policies and also the ones um, issued by the uh, SOEs. Got it. Thanks for, thanks for that, Tiffany. Um, and also turning to the next question, what do you think is the outlook on China's restructuring landscape this year, um, such as for property developers and LGRVs? Is there a big difference between the way onshore and offshore creditors are treated and what are the potential implications? All right, like yeah, this is a yeah, um a, uh, a pretty big question. Um, but I would say that I would expect um, that restructuring efforts of the property companies will continue this year. But uh, the LGFVs are fundamentally very different to um, the privately owned um, property companies. As I said just now, I believe the governments will be supportive of the property developers' efforts to raise funding to restructure its uh, balance sheets by way of macro policies and measures. But in but in in respect of the debts issued by the LGFVs, uh, because they are quasi sovereign debts in nature. Uh, the state has more room and time in mobilizing resources to fill deficiencies and resource solvency of the LGFVs, um, especially given that most of the holder of the LGFV debts are state-owned financial institutions. Um, as, as, as we all see, in the case of the LGFVs in Guizhou, right, uh, in January, the state council made it very clear that like, China will allow local financing platforms to negotiate with um, the, the financial institutions to extend pay repayments and undergo um, debt restructuring to maintain cash flows. And um, your, 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 the second part of your question is in respect of, you know, the, the, uh, the differences like between if, there, if there's, there's any dif differences between the way onshore and offshore creditors are treated. Um, I think uh, like, you know, what I see is that, you know, really um, the, the differences, if any, it really depend on where the value breaks. Because if you look at um, the, the, the capital structure, typically onshore creditors, such as like, you know, lenders, are secured and the construction contracts contractors are treated like preferentially as a matter of law uh, in China ahead of you know the unsecured creditors in the payment waterfall. So uh, whereas the debts held by the offshore creditors are typically unsecured, um, these US dollar bonds are like at best. Uh, I mean, it is what I see like guaranteed by subsidiaries of the same group or or in certain cases backed by uh, the well undertaking uh, offered by its parents. It is intended that I think the pricing of these bonds is uh, reflective of the risk profile of the issuance, uh, the cost of funding. So. It is not, I think it's no different to the other instruments in the market. Uh, of course, whether or not the guarantors and the kitwell providers are going to be able to, to honor the obligations is a topic for another day. And I think this is something that um, the investment community, uh, both onshore and offshore, are familiar with and they like, you know, consider about investing in these uh, you know, uh, bonds and debt instruments. Got it. Thank you so much, uh, Tiffany, for sharing your perspectives. Um, they were very insightful and I hope that our listeners um, will benefit from it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Evelyn. Turning to Southeast Asia, we have Jacqueline Chan, a partner at Millbank. Jacqueline has worked on many refinancing or liability management deals in Southeast Asia. Jacqueline, while China is trying to resolve its property problems, are you seeing more investors shifting towards markets like Indonesia to diversify their portfolios? Are there certain companies or sectors that they favor? Uh, what's your sense, Jacqueline? 
Hi, Evelyn, and thank you so much for the opportunity to connect with you and to really discuss and exchange ideas about the restructuring market and the outlook. You know, we've had a lot of opportunities to be very involved in the restructuring landscape here um, and, you know, just across the region, whether Indonesia and otherwise. And so um, it'll be interesting to see how this year progresses. As you said, China is on the road to resolving its property portfolios and property issues. We're going to be quite, I think it's just a matter of months before we start seeing the survivors and winners um, coming out of that. Um, in the meantime, investors being investors, and while we are, you know, as legal counsel, we are not necessarily there to advise them on the portfolio makeup, um, but we would fully expect that investors will continue to chase yield and continue to try and find opportunities in the market which means that as well as they wait for China um, to fully reopen and see the trajectory of reopening there, um, you know, we would expect that investors will, and if they have not already, been diversifying the portfolio across the region, which would include Indonesia, um, in order to find opportunities within either lowly distressed trading uh, side as well as, you know, yield producing uh, issuers. Um, as you know, Indonesia is made out of several key sectors when it comes to the international bond issuance issuances, um, mining, metals and power and energy being a key sector. Um, we've also seen a lot of issuances from the consumer and industrial side of things. Um, and we've also seen a lot of issuances from the property side of things. Um, you know, at this point in time, uh, the power and energy and mining and metals does not seem to be at, in as distressed a phase as perhaps it might be in other jurisdictions. Um, but we do think that, uh, you know, that consumer has some way to go. Um, and so there might possibly, you know, not not all the all of those issuers have fit, have figured out how to deal with upcoming maturities or otherwise all those Although whether they will, how they would choose to uh, deal with their current bond maturities and 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 bond and outstanding bond indebtedness, is really going to be on a case by case basis. Um, and obviously, we've seen quite a lot of resolution in the property side of the issuers of the of the Indonesian issuers to date. So you know, we do think that there's a lot of opportunities for investors to keep looking through that. We see a lot of the same names in, in some of these deals. Um, and we do expect that investors will continue to find new new ways to invest uh, throughout the region. Got it. Um, several Indonesian issuers benefited from the local banking liquidity and managed to secure loans to refinance their dollar bonds last year. Do you think this trend will continue this year or will lenders likely be tougher on the borrowers. Uh, what's your sense, Jacqueline? I feel like I should preface this with saying something like, you know, past performance doesn't guarantee future future <laughs> results. But um, I, I think, yes, what we have seen so far in the past 12 to 18 months is several Indonesian issuers being very successful in finding liquidity to refinance their USD, uh, USD debt. Um, that liquidity has to date been provided by local banks um, and the proceeds used to tender for the debt. And that seems to be something that seems to be, have been better accepted by the market as opposed to a full-blown restructuring. Um, so it, it would seem that to the extent 
extent that these Indonesian issuers are able to find similar pools of liquidity, um, whether it's from local banks or international banks or even private credit funds, we expect that trend to continue to the extent possible. I think there's an opportunity there for, you know, for capital to be deployed by several of these financial institutions. Um, there's an opportunity for Indonesian issuers to manage their USD obligations to the bondholders. And I think that there is a genuine desire by Indonesian issuers, a genuine preference by Indonesian issuers for this approach, as opposed to going out for a or restructuring, you know, using courts or otherwise. So we probably will see more liability management deals as opposed to restructurings. Um, and we do think that um, this trend will continue. But a lot of this depends on the level of liquidity that will be available to these issuers. Got it. Um, my last question is, what's your outlook for the restructuring landscape in Southeast Asia? Um, are there specific countries that are interesting for you this year and why? That's a great question. And I think it's something that every legal practitioner who is active in this space is trying to come to terms with and trying to evaluate. Um, the general feel globally, um, given the increased rate hikes by the Fed, given the pressures on supply chain as caused by the U Ukraine war and otherwise, is that there are significant pockets of distress. Um, and while companies might have been able to find their way through 2022, 2023 might be the year where many of these companies will decide to bite the bullet and find ways to restructure their, li their liabilities. Now, Southeast Asia is a bit of a different animal. Um, it has pools of its own liquidity and therefore might not be as affected by the Fed rate hike increases, although that obviously goes to the cost of replacement debt. Um, but you know, in terms of supply sh chain shocks, Southeast Asia perhaps has not been affected by the Ukraine war to the same way that, for example, Europe was. So Southeast Asia is a different market when it comes to evaluating restructuring landscape and trying to put a crystal ball um, in looking forward. It, it, I think the, the idea is that there are going to be elements of distress, but perhaps not necessarily due to um, the same factors in the US and Europe. Um, I think for a, the, the key point that will create the source of distress will be the availability of replacement financing. Um, we're seeing that in Vietnam, where recent policy changes caused some issues with the possibility of replacement financing. And so the bonds went to some levels of distress there. Um, it's the same kind of issue that initially sparked the Chinese property developers' distress. So I think that's going to be the key outcome to the extent that there is replacement financing available, whether through private credit markets or local or international banking facilities. Um, it's likely that a lot of these issuers will will escape the restructuring mantle. Um, and to those that, that do go through uh, significant periods of distress, the question is going to be what sort of restructurings would be available and not. But I think for, for and I say that, for example, in Vietnam, um, which has at the moment, as of today, some levels of distress in its property sector, but Vietnam doesn't yet have a fully blown, um, fully developed bankruptcy or insolvency regime. And so it would be interesting to see how uh, we could effect an international restructuring regime on a Vietnamese 
entity um, if those bonds were to require international restructuring. I'm sure it's, uh, there's always a way, and I think we have a couple of ideas about that, but we would acknowledge that it's a uh, first of its kind. Um, we would also say that, you know, in Philippines, where perhaps there's been a sector, one or two specific sectors in distress, um, those sectors seem to be recovering now. And so maybe, and, and a lot of that restructuring seems to have been done with private credit providers as opposed to offshore uh, international debt holders. And then we have um, Malaysia, which could be, which still has a couple of situations to be resolved, and Indonesia, which could have a few more situations to be resolved, but seems to have found a, a path through that um, in terms of accessing local and international financial liquidity. So we do see that there's going to be opportunities for restructuring. Some of this may be in the private credit space as opposed to the international bondholder space. Um, but, you know, the fun thing about doing restructurings is that you never really know. <laughs> and it could be anything. Um, and sometimes they come out of left field and sometimes they, you know, what you think might happen might happen in a different way at a different time. And so that's part of the fun of just staying abreast of situations and staying abreast of options. Thank you so much for sharing your insights, Jacqueline. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And now for India, we have Suhash Sinha, a partner at AZB and Partners. India's non-performing loans have been on a de declining trend as banks wrote off their bad loans, sold their exposure in the secondary market, and are undergoing the in-court resolution process. The Indian Bankruptcy Code, or the IBC, is an important feature of the restructuring scene in India, and it has evolved over the years. Suharsh, what have been the key changes to the IBC so far, and what is your outlook for this year? Uh, first of all, thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm most grateful. Um, you started off on a very interesting point on how the uh, non-performing assets of banks has been going down. And that's been a very positive trend that we have seen over the past two or three years. In fact, if I can just quote some statistics, the, uh, the gross non-performing assets of banks has gone down to a seven-year low of about 5% in September 22. And this is as per data published by the Reserve Bank of India, uh, India's banking sector regulator. Uh, in addition, the capital to risk weighted assets ratio has improved to 16%. And the common equity tier one ratio has also improved significantly to 13%. Uh, further, the profit after tax of scheduled commercial banks registered a growth of about 41% in the two quarters um, of, of, of last year. Now, all of these uh, figures show that the bank balance sheets have improved significantly. Uh, many of your listeners who follow India would remember that in 2016-17, when the bankruptcy court was introduced, the non-performing ratio of banks was in double digits. By some estimates, it was about 12 to 14%. So it's now less, less than halved. Now, some part of it obviously can be attributed to recoveries through the bankruptcy court. Uh, there are other factors as well, however, which we must be cognizant of. There has been bank recapitalization. And at the same time, banks have made full provisioning for certain legacy NPAs, which were sitting on their balance sheets for a long time. So a combination of factors has led to a better financial health of the banking sector. Having said that, there are still uh, many bad loans which need to be resolved because though the balance sheets of banks have been cleaned, these loans have acquired, been acquired to a great extent either by secondary traders of debt, um, such as foreign hedge funds, foreign portfolio investors, as well as asset reconstruction companies. So 
I'll, I'll come back to the, the the main question which 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 you had addressed which is how we have seen the performance of the bankruptcy code and and a little bit about what we see in the coming few months so the bankruptcy code i would say in the past six years has been a resounding success uh, if you look at the recoveries which banks have been able to make over the past few years as a proportion of their liquidation value or what the banks would have achieved in the event of a winding up banks recoveries through the bankruptcy code have been to the tune of 175 to 180% as a proportion of their total claims that they had against the insolvent companies, their recoveries have been close to one third, so 33%. Both of which are huge improvements compared to what we had earlier under the, the erstwhile regime of insolvency in India, which was basically either a complete winding down under the Companies Act or a restructuring under the Sikh Industrial Companies Act. In both these cases, the recoveries tended to be quite low in the range of 20, 25%. And the time taken for recovery was more than four to five years. Uh, under the bankruptcy regime, the time taken for recovery currently hovers around one to two years, depending on whether it is a resolution or a liquidation, and depending on the size of the asset and the complexity of the asset. Short point being, on both counts, which is time as well as recovery, we have seen a massive improvement. Um, the other positive feature about the bankruptcy code has been the amount of engagement the government has done with market participants. There have been regular discussions. Uh, the government has reached out to, to firms such as ours. They've reached out to insolvency professionals, banks, and other regulators to get feedback on the functioning of the bankruptcy code and for potential improvements. In this regard now, the government has a bunch of proposals which are likely to be introduced in the parliament in the coming few months. We are hopeful that they will be introduced in July, which is the monsoon session of the Indian parliament. And I'll just talk about a few of the amendments which have been considered over there. Because there are still a few bottlenecks in IBC, though I think a lot of the issues have been ironed out. There are still a few bottlenecks which the government is cognizant of and seems to be working on quite diligently. So I think the first one is uh, the, the capacity of the bankruptcy courts. The bankruptcy courts today are still not fully staffed by judges. The government is looking at that very seriously because the backlog of cases in the bankruptcy courts is rising as a result of which banks are thinking of alternative ways of, of uh, resolving companies and not resorting to, bank, to the bankruptcy court. Second, there has been delays at the bankruptcy court because once a resolution planned by a bidder has been approved, it takes a long time before inter-creditor disputes are resolved. So even though a plan has been approved and lenders are happy with the plan, because the lenders have issues inter se, those uh, litigations take time to pan out and to be resolved during which the payout does not happen and the acquirer is not able to acquire control, which is obviously problematic because the acquirer has put a certain amount of, of cash on the table, which is eroding in value. So the second proposal is to make a distinction between the approval part of the process and the distribution part. So once a plan is approved, the acquirer will acquire control, the resolution amount will be put in an escrow, and the distribution can take place as and when the intercreditor disputes are resolved. Other than this, there have been a few judgments from the Supreme Court which are particularly worrying. But the good thing is, as I said, central government is aware of it. So the three judgments I'll, I'll quickly mention. One is India Resurgence versus Amit Metallics, which severely compromises the rights of secured creditors. Uh, under the bankruptcy code, if you're a secured creditor who votes against a plan, then you're assured your individual liquidation value or security value. The Supreme Court, however, held that all secured creditors, regardless of the priority or exclusivity or value of the security, for all of them, the entire 
collateral package will be pulled in together and lenders will get a pari passo recovery. Now, this obviously prejudices the rights of lenders who have superior security or exclusive security. And this has been a major issue for the banking sector because it questions the commercial bargain they're entered into at the time of granting the loan. And it also affects how they provide for these loans in their balance sheets. Because under the provisioning norms, if it's a secured loan, then the provisioning is different. And at the end of the day, if the law or the interpretation changes retrospectively, it certainly affects how they will account for those bad loans in their books. Secondly, there was a judgment again by the Supreme Court in the case of Rainbow Papers, where the Supreme Court said that there are certain statutes um, which are for recovery of dues by tax authorities, both by central and, and um, government or provincial tax, authority, uh, tax authorities, where if the statute contains a language which creates a charge on the assets of the company, then that charge shall be treated superior to the charge in favor of other secured lenders. Now, this judgment is creates an issue on two or three counts, because first of all, the bankruptcy court is very clear in its definition of a secured creditor that it shall only relate to those entities who have given, who have lent to the company, or rather who have entered into a transaction with the company. So only transactional security is considered, not statutory security. Secondly, it goes against the intent of the bankruptcy court, because under the bankruptcy court, government authorities are treated as operational creditors, and they are much lower in the liquidation waterfall compared to financial creditors. So it goes against not only the scheme of the IBC, but even the intent of the bankruptcy code. And this was a very important policy decision taken by the government of subordinating government dues, which seems to be overturned. The last case I'd, I'd quickly touch upon is uh, a case where the Supreme Court held that uh, the uh, called Vidharba Industries, where the NCLT, which is the bankruptcy court, NCLT's ability to admit a bankruptcy petition. Uh, over there, the NCLT has discretion in going beyond the occurrence of a mere default, and they can also look into issues of solvency and commercial viability of the corporate debtor, which is the company against whom insolvency has been filed. Now, this order obviously is also quite problematic because the whole idea of the bankruptcy court was to have a simple, objective, default-based insolvency process as opposed to going into the solvency and net worth analysis of the company against whom insolvency has been filed. This was clear in the report which uh, was which led to the drafting of the bankruptcy code and it's also very clear in the text of the bankruptcy code. Um, the government is also reconsidering this because obviously it will lead to disparate interpretations of, of, of what is a healthy company and what is a healthy balance sheet and there'll be subjectivity in interpretation as well. So the government is thankfully also reconsidering this. And the last point, if I have a few seconds, I'll quickly touch upon is the prepack regime. So the government has proposed a prepack regime, which is frankly, it's been in play for the past two, two years or so for small and medium for MSME companies. But for uh, large corporates, there is still no prepack regime. Now, the prepack regime is obviously uh, highly beneficial because it is cost efficient. It saves time. It is more consensual in nature. And it also helps the existing promoters retain control over the company. Um, at the same time, there is no fear of moral hazard because Section 29A of the IBC, which debars defaulting promoters from continuing with the company, still remains applicable in a prepack regime. And it's an open and transparent process, which is overseen by the NCLT. The only difference being that you have a resolution plan which is agreed by the secured creditors, and then you go to the bankruptcy court, as opposed to going to the bankruptcy court first 
and then in writing plans, negotiating plans, and then closing it. So it saves a significant amount of time before the bankruptcy court. Uh, it's commercially more feasible, it's more efficient, and it will also reduce the burden on the courts. So there is a serious consideration by the government currently on being able to expand it beyond small companies and take it to large corporates as well. Thank you so much, Suhosh, for your time. With that, we've come to the conclusion of our Asia Outlook podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you found it useful. Thank you very much.